there, everybody. Let's get started today with a few announcements. First, August 25th marks round two of the Texas Podacalypse. All of your favorite Texas podcasts, including yours truly, will be together in one place. Come join us the evening of Saturday, August 25th at Rio Rita in Austin. Second, the fundraiser for Texas EquiSearch is still active. All it takes is a $5 donation to enter your name in a drawing to win a Lone Star Law and Disorder mason jar, along with some other little goodies. But a $20 donation will get your name entered for a grab bag full of merch from all of your favorite Texas podcasts. Regardless of how much you donate, be sure to email me a screenshot of your donation to lonelaw18 at gmail.com. You can view more info on this and on the Austin Meetup on the Lone Star Law and Disorder Facebook page. Third, I'm still waiting to hear from all those folks with all those accents to introduce the show. If this is new to you, head back to Episode 7 to listen to the details. But don't worry, I brought in some backup to cover today's show. You'll see what I mean. And lastly, but definitely not leastly, a huge shout-out to some listeners who were kind enough to leave some awesome reviews on my various social media platforms. Reap and Kathy and Jay Anders 86 thank you so much for your five-star rating and review on iTunes. I am far from a professional in this field, but I sure am glad you think I sound like one. Mima Cook, I do remember meeting your daughter, and I also remember her telling me that her mother loves all things true crime. I'm so glad you decided to give my podcast a listen, and thank you for taking the time to leave a positive rating and review on iTunes. And finally... I've got some mad gratitude for listener Michael Poole, who left me an amazing review on Facebook and included my podcast with some of the biggest and the best in the article he wrote for CrimeSyndicateMagazine.com. I'll include a link to his article in the show notes. If I didn't catch your review this time around, just be sure to listen for your shout-out on the next episode. And now, without further ado, on with the show. Take her away, Ava. Hi guys, this is Ava from East Texas. My mom's podcast contains graphic descriptions of violence and is definitely not suitable for people my age. In other words, don't say she didn't warn ya. Have I ever mentioned that Texas is a really big state? No, I didn't think so. Now if you're from Texas... I probably don't need to tell you, because you already know. If you're not from Texas, you may have thought to yourself once or twice that Texas can't really be that big. But it is. Texas is the second largest state in the United States, with an area of over 268,000 square miles split up into 254 counties. Let's break that down a bit for some perspective. From our easternmost city, Beaumont, to our westernmost city, El Paso, it's over 800 miles. That means Beaumont is literally closer to Atlanta, Georgia, than it is to El Paso, by almost 100 miles. And El Paso is actually closer to the border of California than it is to Dallas. If you're the sightseeing type, that's a lot of road to cover. And roads we've got. There are more than 70,000 miles of highway in Texas. 
And if you were to somehow manage to snooze your way through a trip from east to west Texas in the passenger seat of a pickup truck, you might think you were waking up in a different world altogether. While you've already heard me talk about the abundance of thick green forests and winding rivers of the east, it's probably west Texas that people imagine in their mind's eye when they think about Texas. A small town culture made up of cowboys, dry heat, dust storms, tumbleweeds, wide open spaces comprised of great plains and desert, and incomparable sunsets. You know, all the stuff that good old western movies are made of. But with the exception of El Paso, most of Texas's population is centered around its metropolitan areas back east. Well, east of the Balcones fault, that is. But that comprises all our major cities, including the capital. The largest city in Texas is actually not our capital, though. It's Houston, which is where our journey begins today. 31-year-old Michelle Warner had only lived in Houston with Mark Castellano, the father of her three-year-old son, for about three months before they made the long ride across the Lone Star State together from Houston to Midland, Texas. But only one of them would really get to enjoy all the beauty that Texas has to offer through its ever-changing landscape and climate over the 500-mile, eight-hour trip. Because only one of them would make the trip alive. I'm Krista, and you're listening to Episode 8 of Lone Star Law and Disorder. Michelle Chafin was a small-town girl. She grew up in the mixed pine and hardwood forests of Houston County, Texas. Now, contrary to a common misperception, the county of Houston has nothing in common other than its name with the city of Houston, which is actually in Harris County, about 100 miles south, and has a population about 100 times the size of Houston County. By the time Michelle graduated from Grapeland High School in 1999, the population of the entire county was only around 23,000. In fact, the largest town within its boundaries is the county seat, Crockett, which as of the last census had a population of only around 6,700. Grapeland only had about 1,400. Mark Castellano, on the other hand, wasn't from around these parts, and Michelle wouldn't meet him for about another nine years. In 1999, like many typical high schoolers or recent graduates do, Michelle was working a part-time job waiting tables at a small restaurant in Palestine, Texas. This is where her friend Brooke says their small worlds collided and led to an unlikely friendship. Well, we actually met at El Toro in Palestine because we both worked there. And when I started working there, um, she was like loud and outgoing and I'm like quiet and real shy and so... At first, we really didn't get along because I was like, oh my gosh, she's like loud mouth and, you know, totally opposite of me. But then we started hanging out and then she's like, oh, well, I want um, her boyfriend, Chase. Um, she's like, I want you to meet his cousin. He just moved here. But I was like, okay, whatever, fine. So we all went out. We do like a double date. And so ever since then, we just really hung out and did a lot of stuff together. And I started dating her boyfriend's cousin so my oldest son is actually cousins with her oldest daughter they're like second cousins michelle married young almost right out of high school in fact 
becoming Michelle Warner. And in 2001, she gave birth to a daughter, Haley. But as all too many young couples do, Michelle and her husband grew up and they grew apart. And in 2003, the marriage ended. Michelle's ex-husband was awarded custody of their daughter and Michelle found herself out on her own. I think they just, they grew apart from each other and they had two different personalities. Haley's dad was more laid back and she was more outgoing, wanting to have fun and stuff. And, and I think they just, they both decided to go their own ways, really. Michelle began dating soon after. Who knows if she was just looking for someone to fill the space at the time or if she was ready to find Mr. Wright at that point. For whatever reason, though, Michelle ended up falling into the arms of Mr. Wrong. And then she started dating some guy, I don't know what his name was, but then he, he got her into doing drugs and stuff. And so that was another reason why she didn't have custody of her daughter. But during that time, I didn't really talk to her because of everything that was going on. During that relationship, she began experimenting with drugs, ran off a few times, and eventually, by 2006, was caught and arrested for possession of cocaine. Michelle seemed to learn her lesson much sooner than a lot of other people who fall victim to that path, though, because it was at that point that she decided to leave that mess behind her and start her climb back to the top. I mean, that only lasted like maybe a year, year and a half. And she wasn't, I mean, she wasn't even that bad, that bad off on drugs before. And it was just something because of some guy, some influence had on her. And then she got in trouble and she decided to change her change your ways. I mean, it happens to some people. Michelle had moved to the Houston area and was working for a home health care company when she met Mark, who also worked for the same company as their IT guy. They seemed to hit it off and began dating shortly after, and they hadn't been dating long when Michelle became pregnant in 2008 and gave birth to their son Caden in 2009. The relationship between Michelle and Mark was no fairy tale. The following years would be filled with breakups and makeups that consisted of living together and living apart. Regardless of how they were living, though, Michelle never got a lot of support from Mark, financially or emotionally. Like, they would always, like, get back together and then split up, then get back together and split up. Like, he would he would have his spells. Like, he would be around, and then he wouldn't be around. But his thing was... And I was trying to go back to, like, my old phone and try to look through her text message because she would text me. She'd be like, you know, he's not around. He's supposed to pick up Caden. You know, he's supposed to give me money. He was supposed to do this. He was supposed to do that. So he was he was never really there. But to other people that they were around looked like he was always trying. And she would call me. She was like, I ran down to the store and I told Mark to watch Caden. Or, you know, what happened? No, she, she had to go into work. So she had to go into work. She called Mark to come watch Caden. And he ended up leaving and going to the grocery store because I guess the department that they lived in, there was a store right behind there. He left the baby there and ran to the store. And, like, there's been incidents, like, where he's, like, tried to run her over when she was pregnant and, like, all kinds of crazy stuff that nobody brought up. What she lacked from Mark, she made up for with a loving family and friends who adored her. Michelle never let her situation with Mark change who she was 
or take away from the time she could spend with her family and her friends. The distance between them may have kept them apart physically, but Brooke says she was never really that far away from a friend. Yeah, I mean, I was around her up until she had Cadence because she was like family. We, we would always do stuff, and then whenever she had Caden, um, I didn't really see her much because she didn't come into town. Usually she would come in, you know, come back to Grapeland a lot to visit, but at that time after she had him, she really didn't visit that much, and I lived in Austin too, so it was hard to... And, like, I would always, like, go to her kids' birthdays or she would come here. You know, she loved to sing. She used to sing in high school, but she would get so nervous that she would, like, for, like, whenever she would practice singing, she would sing in her car so nobody would hear her. Um, <laughs> and I don't know why. I was like, you have, you have an amazing voice. I was like, I don't know why you get so nervous. So anyway, she tried out for American Idol and she made it through like the first two, two tryouts. And then, um, and then she didn't make it through the last part because they were sleeping outside. So she ended up getting sick. So she, she lost her voice. So she didn't make it any further. And that was one thing I always told her. I was like, you're all, you're going to sing at my, my wedding, no matter what. Michelle still always made time for the most important things. It seemed no matter what, whether she could be on time for them was a different story altogether. And she was always late. No matter where she went, she was always late. And so she was even like an hour late to my wedding. And I was like, I'm not having my wedding until she gets here. I'm sorry. So we all waited on her. Yeah, she changed the song up on me, too. That was not the song I told her to sing. But when she started singing, I was like, what is this? She's like, I'm sorry, I like this song. I'm going to sing. I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> but that's just how she is. She and Michelle still talked frequently on the phone. And no one remained without a picture or a word from Michelle for long. Oh, yeah, we talked all the time, and she would, she loved mailing out pictures, and she talked a lot. So she would write, like, it was, like, word for word. <laughs> like, she would send you, like, a birthday card, and it was, like, written on the front, on the back, on the side, wherever she could write, because that's all she did was talk. And so she, that was one of the things that, she loved to do she liked writing letters and she loved taking pictures of the kids and so like every christmas or every birthday or everything i would always expect um a card with like a ton of pictures that's just what she did she loved taking pictures of them and sending them to everybody after their last breakup michelle had moved in with a friend in houston she'd begun studying criminal justice again and had gotten a job as a paralegal but things were still hard for Michelle, because although our past doesn't define us, it sure does like to follow us around. So when the living situation with her roommate fell through, Michelle found herself in quite a predicament. Given that her closest family was several hours away, and some of her best friends even further, Michelle reached out to the only person close enough to help her out in any way. She called Mark. Now some of the resources available online such as some of the news articles I read and television programs I saw, make it sound as if Mark extended an olive branch and offered to let Michelle live with him until she got on her feet because she had nowhere else to go. But Brooke says it just wasn't like that. The fact is, Michelle ended up in even more of a predicament and ended up having to live with Mark because of Mark. I'm trying to remember, but she, the girl that she was living with was um, the dark-headed girl. I can't remember her name. 
And um, I don't know if they had like a fallen out or, you know, because that's where she was living was over at her best friend's house. And it was my understanding that she had kicked Michelle and Caden out. And so they didn't have nowhere else to go. So Mark told her, well, I'll get an apartment for you. So she gave Mark the money to go get the apartment. Well, he turned around and didn't give all that money to the apartment complex or something happened. And so she had already had all of her stuff packed in a moving truck. And um, so her and Kaden had to stay in the moving truck for a couple of nights before she could find another place because he took, took her money and didn't do what he said he was supposed to be doing. And so when it came down to it and she found this other apartment, he was like, Oh, well, I'll help you. I'm sorry. Blah, blah, blah. You know? So he started staying over there. And, uh, you know, I told her, I was like, why, why would you even do that? You know, and she's like, well, I need the help. I need the money. So he said he was going to help. I don't, I don't know what was actually said between them, but all I know is that she's, you know, that he took her money to begin with and that she really didn't want to have anything to do with him, but she had no other choice because she didn't have any money. And I guess because of her credit, she had bad credit, so she couldn't. And then, you know, whatever the drug charges that were on, like a felony or whatever, it was hard for her to rent something. So she had no other choice. And I was like, okay. And then that's when, you know, everything happened. On Monday, September 24th, 2012, Michelle didn't show up for work. Her employer tried to contact her several times, but was unsuccessful. When Michelle didn't show up for work again the following day, her employer contacted the police. Her place of employment wasn't the only place where her absence was noticeable, though, either. Michelle was supposed to attend Brooke's baby shower in Grapeland that weekend. But she never showed up, and she never answered Brooke's phone calls. That same Monday, Michelle's brother received a phone call from Michelle's ex-husband and discovered that Michelle hadn't shown up to pick up their daughter as planned. In an effort to get in touch with Michelle, her brother called the person he expected would know where she was. He called Mark. But Michelle wasn't there. Mark said that he and Michelle had gotten into a big argument on Saturday night. He said it was so bad that Michelle storms out of the apartment on foot, and he hadn't seen her since. And he said that Michelle hadn't taken her car, or Caden. It seems the only person that wasn't concerned about the circumstances of Michelle's disappearance was Mark. In response to the report made by Michelle's employer that she'd not shown up for work for two days, Law enforcement went to the apartment on Tuesday, September 25th. Nothing seemed out of place, and there was no indication that anything was wrong. Without something, anything, there was nothing law enforcement could do. With still no word from Michelle, on September 27th, a detective with the police department placed a call to Mark. During their conversation, Mark told the detective that he came home from work Saturday evening, September 22nd, and got into a fight with Michelle. He said Michelle had punched him in the face and then went into her room and shut the door. Later that evening, he'd gone in the room to confront her about it, but she was gone. 
and she had taken her purse, keys, and cell phone, but left her car and her son? Mark also made sure to inform the detective that Michelle had a history of drug abuse and a history of leaving for several days at a time. He said that he decided right then to pack up Caden and take Michelle's car to his parents' home all the way in Odessa, Texas. He arrived at his parents the next morning and told them what was going on. But then Mark told detectives that he decided to drive back to Houston on Sunday to get the rest of his clothes together. He turned his resignation into work on Monday and drove back to Odessa again. The next day or two days after, whenever I think her brother posted the the picture of her on Facebook, because she, she was missing, I had like my Facebook like flooded, like, oh my God, you know, have you seen this? And I was like, what is this? I was like, there's no way she would up and leave and not tell nobody. Like, that's just not her. During the week after Michelle's disappearance, the police recovered surveillance footage of the parking lot in front of Mark and Michelle's apartment from the weekend of September 22nd through September 24th. The video showed Mark pulling into the parking lot in his truck at 6.48 p.m. on Saturday evening and Mark entering the apartment at 6.57 p.m. At 8.44 p.m., Mark walked out of the apartment to the parking lot and backed Michelle's car into a spot under the carport. Mark was seen making several more trips back and forth from the apartment to the car before he eventually left in Michelle's car, not his truck, at 9.28 p.m. There was no activity again at the apartment between Mark's departure on Saturday night and when he returned on Sunday night. But on Monday, September 24, 2012, at 3.21 a.m., surveillance cameras captured Mark dragging a large container to the car. Then, starting at 5.41 a.m., Mark began making multiple trips to the car before finally leaving around 6 o'clock a.m. Later, during a search of the bedroom Mark had been staying in at his parents' house, a portable closet was also removed from his bedroom, which contained a white purse, a set of keys labeled Michelle, miscellaneous cards bearing Michelle's name, Michelle's student ID card, and a credit card in Michelle's name. Only Mark originally told detectives that Michelle had taken her purse and keys with her. Michelle's phone records also showed that there had been no activity since that night, and the last call she had made was to Mark. Michelle's family and friends had been adamant that Mark had something to do with Michelle's disappearance. And so I kept telling anybody, I was like, this doesn't sound right. This, you know, he's, he's had, he's been crazy in the past, you know, and so I don't know why the, they weren't looking at him to begin with. Yeah, I even told the investigators when they called, I was like, uh, where is he at, and why aren't you? Why why isn't he in custody? I mean, this is crazy. And all, and everybody that they talked to said that she's not like that, just to up and leave. So that should be your indication that something's wrong. But Mark had a plausible, maybe not likely, but plausible excuse for everything, and police just didn't have any proof yet. Five days after Michelle's disappearance. Homicide detectives Phil Waters and Brian Harris began coordinating with missing persons. Detective Waters made contact with Mark by phone, and Mark agreed to fly to Houston for a recorded non-custodial interview. But before that interview, he had one more to complete. It appears that Michelle's family had contacted the Dr. Phil show in an effort to get Michelle's name and picture out there and try to get any possible information that anyone might have regarding her whereabouts. The Dr. Phil show then in turn contacted Mark. 
six days after the mother of his child had gone missing. Mark Costiano would sit for an interview with Dr. Phil at his parents' home in Odessa, Texas. Let's talk about the night she disappeared. Okay. You had a fight. Yes, sir. And was this a physical fight or an argument or both? Basically, I come home. Um, she's in her room. The first thing she does is start yelling at me that the Caden has made a big mess. He was running wild. Uh, about this point, I start arguing. You know, you've been asleep. You know, what do you want? You take enough Xanax so you can't hear him. You know, and we start fighting. Caden is at this point in his room hiding. She walks up to me. And she gives me this kind of sucker punch while I'm on four. I mean, it, she, she hits me all the time, and I don't retaliate. But she hit me and said, and clean it up right, expletive, expletive. And she goes in and slams the door. Where did she hit you? In the she face. Hit you in the face? Yeah. And you didn't retaliate? No. Caden is in his room hiding. Why is he hiding? Because of the screaming. Noises. Has this happened a lot in front of him? Yes, sir. Okay, so you say she goes in, slams the door. You think she's just in there right. on the bed or something. But you go back in to resume the argument, right. frankly. yes. And? She's gone. She's gone. Yes, sir. And that's last time you saw her was when she punched you in the face. Yes, sir. We I'm sitting there watching her walk away, slam that door, and that's the last time. She has a car. She didn't take the car. So why didn't she take the car? You know, I don't really know uh, for certain. She's always carrying narcotics, and she's definitely, definitely afraid of being pulled over by the police. Did she just walk away from the apartment, you think? I'm sure someone picked her up. She doesn't walk anywhere. But you think she called somebody to come get her? She had to. Her cell phone has apparently not been on since she left. How would she communicate with people without her cell phone? The only thing is that she has a bag of cell phones. And that's what I told Houston police. Um, she probably had at least 11 of them. Really? Yes, sir. The night she disappears, you said you load your son, a three-year-old, up mm -hmm. in the car. Yes, sir. And drive eight hours mm -hmm. to Odessa, where we sit right now. Right now. Why leave at 11 o'clock at night? It took me... When she's she's gone... Weren't you concerned that she would come home and find Caden gone? She wouldn't, freak I knew out? she wouldn't come back till like six or seven the next day. That was her MO. It's really odd, drugs or otherwise, for a mother to just not check on, find out anything about a child. If you think something has happened to her, why aren't you looking for her? I mean, as far as everybody has exhausted the leads that I have. I don't know where, where else to go. I, they, the police are looking for her, they're professionals. Did you do anything to her that would be considered foul play or criminal? No, no. Did you kill her? No, sir. You didn't do anything to her? You, you don't have her no. somewhere? No, you have no. Like I said, she, no has, involvement run, in she her has run over me. I have let her run over me. There would be those who said, you finally got enough. She pushed you too far. What? Finally said, by God, that's enough. You know what? And you blew up on her. I didn't have to do anything like that. If she is watching this right now, let's she say can she's come home. Sick, and what do you she, say to her? She, we can fix this. On September 30th, 2012, Mark met with homicide detective Phil Waters of the Houston Police Department. Okay, so the first thing, you're not under arrest. And again, I've told you, I, I certainly appreciate you coming here and, and uh, talking right, to well, us. I and want Michelle to be spending a lot of time here. 
For the most part, Detective Waters let Mark do the talking. He had Mark talk about he and Michelle's relationship from start to finish. Mark told Detective Waters that when things were good between them, they were really good. They would live together with their son and have Michelle's daughter over for visits. They even adopted a kitten together in August. But Mark said when things were bad, they were really bad. He painted Michelle as an emotionally and verbally abusive person and painted himself as the victim. Pressure's building. The pressure's building on me, yes. Got it. When she gets mad, she's violent. She'll hit you. She thinks she has the right to. And, you know, a man has to take up crap. She's a pretty girl and she gets everything she wants. She, wow. she has a princess attitude. Wow. She would sometimes just leave Mark and move in with another on-and-off boyfriend. Initially, Mark maintained that he and Michelle had gotten into a huge argument, that she had slammed the door to her bedroom, and that he had later discovered that she was gone without any idea where she might be. Let's get to last Saturday, the 22nd. Okay. And what's your walks out and slams the door to her room. And about 10, 15 minutes later, I open the door to say, well, you know what? And Scott, I need you to explain to me what happened. We both know, we both know Michelle did not walk out of that apartment. I don't love her. I'm not in love with her. I mean, I don't want anything to happen. I, I wish Michelle would pop up right now. And yeah, go, hey, yeah. I, I, when she gets mad, she's violent. I, yeah. I'm, I don't care what anybody says she is. I said something about, did you take too many pills? You can't watch Caden or something. But she was like, I can't tolerate Caden. She was like, I need help with him. She was like, he's driving me nuts. But after nearly two hours of questioning and some smooth interview techniques by Detective Waters, Mark took off his glasses, took a deep breath, and finally started to talk. So your, your concern for Caden is mainly centered on when Michelle is the primary right. caregiver. It wasn't about hurting Michelle. It was about the love and the strength of that love that you have for Caden and protecting him from anybody that would threaten or hurt him. And that's what you're going to have to explain now. I'm not wanting you to explain to me that you wanted to hurt Michelle. I want you to explain to me what you felt like you had to do to protect Caden. So I want you to be honest with me and tell me what happened. got up and um, I got up and um, she's getting dressed and she's finishing up and she's still yelling and Caden's hiding I grabbed her and I broke her neck okay and I just threw her down and got kids, called my parents. And then when I came back, I just got rid of her. Where did you get rid of her? She's in Midland. Okay. Do you know where? And would you be willing to take us there? Yes. Because I, I, look, I can't live with this anymore either, man. I know. I wanted to tell Dr. Phil, but hey, man, it wasn't a, it wasn't a, it wasn't 
I just grabbed her, and I mean, I have Tom, I, I don't want to kill myself either to get to not be prosecuted for this, but I felt dead inside already. Let me tell you something, Mark. Number one. <laughs> I don't have anything where else. I didn't have anything else to do. Look at me, my friend. Look at me. I'm sorry. Um, Give me the death penalty. That's fine. Look, look, I deserve Mark, it. Mark, look, I'm proud of you. <laughs> Life is over with anyway. your, your life's not over with, Mark. Mark. Listen to me, man. Listen to I lied to everybody. I didn't want to do it. Listen, listen to me. Listen to me. Your life is not over. And you know why? Why? You've got Caden. <laughs> I'll never see him uh, again. You will. You will. Don't kill me in prison. No, no. Listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to me, Mark. Look, here's what I want you to focus on. I want you to know this, and I want you to look me in the eye. I'm proud of you. It takes a real man to stand in here, sit in this room, and talk with me, and talk about something that he's done that is so egregiously wrong. Let me tell you, it does. Mark said he grabbed Michelle's throat with both hands and threw her down onto the bed. He heard her neck snap, and then the apartment was quiet. This, however, began to evolve more toward the truth as time went on. Mark later stated that he had grabbed her around the neck, and they fell backwards onto the bed. When they did, he somehow twisted, and he heard a pop. In the end, Mark finally admitted that when he had grabbed her by the neck and thrown her onto the bed, he had held her there. He'd heard a pop and saw Michelle's tongue sticking out. And he knew she was dead. It was at this point, Mark said, that their son walked around the corner and saw his mother's legs hanging off the bed. Mark told the boy that his mommy was sleeping and simply redirected his attention. He had no idea what to do at that point, no plan. He acted on his first thought, which was to get his son out of the apartment. Mark taped Michelle's feet together and placed a plastic bag over her head. Then he moved Michelle's body to a closet and left her there. He called his parents in Odessa to ask if he and his son could stay there, telling them that Michelle had walked out again. When he returned to Houston, he put Michelle's body in a large crate, dragging it down the stairs, and loaded it into the car. The tote stayed in the car for a day and a half before the odor got to him. He left Odessa heading toward Midland. Mark put her body in a small gully near an oil field and lightly covered her in dirt. After confessing to the police, instead of making his one phone call, Mark placed multiple phone calls to multiple family members and friends, admitting that he had killed Michelle. One of those phone calls was to the producers of the Dr. Phil show. You know, we were fighting, and I, you know, she's swinging at me, and I grabbed her, you know, next snap, and I fell on the bed choking her, and the next thing I know, it was over with. Her tongue was sticking out, and she was gone. It was too far, it went too far. So her brother had um, messaged me on his way to the interview with uh, Dr. Phil is when he found out 
Oh, you sent me a text message. I kind of knew, you know how you have that feeling, that gut feeling that something something's happened or something's wrong? Just because it's just everything that they had said and seen and the people have told them that it just didn't sound like her. So I knew something was wrong. I mean, you don't ever want to think the worst, but, and it really threw me off guard on how, what he did with her. Like, you're going to drive all the way to Odessa and keep her in a car for two days before you figure out what you're going to do with her while you're at your parents' house. Mark drew a diagram that would direct police to the general location of Michelle's body. In a rural area just south of Midland, FBI agent Sherry Rice found a decomposing body partially covered in dirt. After running a fingerprint comparison, the body was identified as Michelle Warner. The autopsy of Michelle's body revealed that she sustained two fractures to her airway, a fracture of the hyoid bone and a fracture of the cricoid cartilage. Evidence of petechiae on the inner surfaces of her lips indicated that Michelle died of asphyxiation. Petechiae are basically tiny pinpoint round spots that result from bleeding under the skin from ruptured blood vessels. The opinion of the medical examiner was that the findings supported that the cause of Michelle's death was in fact strangulation. Mark Castellano was officially charged and tried for murder. At the close of the trial, the jury was presented with the option to convict Mark of the lesser-included offense of manslaughter. Under Section 19.04 of the Texas Penal Code, in manslaughter, a person is killed as a result of another person's reckless actions. Manslaughter is not an intentional killing. The jury ultimately rejected this lesser charge in favor of finding that Mark intentionally and knowingly caused Michelle's death by placing his hands around her neck and squeezing. During the punishment phase of the trial, Mark's defense raised the issue of sudden passion. Sudden passion is basically a phrase that describes a violent act that's committed under circumstances of great emotional disturbance or distress and without any premeditation. A classic example of sudden passion is the husband that comes home to find his wife in bed with another man. And in a sudden fit of rage provoked by their wife's actions, the husband lashes out and attacks the wife. Before he realizes what he's done, his wife is dead. Now in Texas, sudden passion is not a defense to murder. The issue of sudden passion can't be raised until the punishment phase of the trial. If a jury were to find a defendant guilty of murder, but also find that the defendant acted out of sudden passion when the murder was committed, the murder charge would be mitigated from a first-degree felony to a second-degree felony. That's a difference of a 5- to 99-year sentence versus a 2- to 20-year sentence. But the jury in this case also chose to reject Mark's claim of sudden passion. Why, you might ask? Well, there were probably a few things that may have had something to do with that decision. For instance, Mark had told the police that he had previously gotten into a fight with Michelle where he had grabbed her by the neck, tackled her to the ground, and held her until she said she couldn't breathe. In addition, one of Mark's co-workers testified that Mark told him about an incident in 2009 where he choked Michelle for eight seconds. He further testified about an unrelated incident where Mark attempted to run Michelle over with his car. The jury also heard testimony from Mark's supervisor that he had threatened to kill Michelle on two different occasions. On the first occasion, Mark had said that he was going to kill Michelle so his parents could take care of their son. And on the other occasion, 
Mark had come into work yelling that Michelle had physically assaulted him and he needed to find a pipe because he was going to kill her. That second threat happened only a few months before the murder. On top of that, Mark's supervisor also testified that Mark had requested to take the week of September 24th to resolve Caden's child care situation. Even though they rejected any mitigating circumstances presented by the defense, on May 27, 2014, after four hours of deliberation, the jury sentenced Mark to only 27 years, making him eligible for parole after only 13 and a half. But eligibility does not equal freedom. Part of being granted parole is accepting responsibility for one's actions. So Mark would have to be able to tell both sides of the story, his and Michelle's. But so far, I've only heard the one. Throughout all of his interviews and appearances, it seems Mark has gotten to tell his story for the both of them. And Michelle's voice has gotten lost somewhere along the way. She had never gotten in a fight. The only thing she would do would sit there and cuss. That was it. And she was very witty. She was very smart. And she was, she was really quick on her toes. So if she was in an argument, she'd come back quick with something. Uh, I mean, that was her whole thing. She was going back to um, law school. So she was very, she was very quick and smart and on her toes. I mean, she would never, I've never even seen her try to fight anybody. And whenever they would do like the interview, I'm like, oh my God, that's not how it was. That's not what, you know, that's not how it went. And I was like getting so mad. I was like, I just can't watch this no more. I was like, they have it all wrong. Well, not on this podcast. On this podcast, you should never underestimate the power of a victim's voice. And what a powerful voice she had. That's all for today's episode of Lone Star Law and Disorder. Lone Star Law and Disorder is an independent podcast researched, written, and narrated by me. It's available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. If you haven't yet, be sure to rate and review the podcast wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. I'm also pleased to announce that Lone Star Law and Disorder is now being sponsored by Sentry On-Site Security and Private Investigations. I'll include a link to their website in the show notes as well. This company is owned and operated by a couple of former detectives that I personally have had the pleasure of working with on a case or two of my own. 
and I wouldn't trust this podcast in the hands of anything less than the best. Just be sure to let them know who sent you. See you next time.